Welcome to the Congregation of Yahweh. We're passionate about declaring the truths that the Bible contains. It's for everyone. We'll hope you'll enjoy and be enriched by this message. The end of Matthew chapter 7. Yeshua told what is a very familiar parable. He spoke about two men and two houses. One house was built on rock and one was built on sand. What happened? The storm came, the rain fell, the winds blew, and one house fell with a loud crash. Which one was that? The one built on the sand and the one built on the rock stood. Stood firm, stayed right where it was. I want you to, today as I speak, to keep this story, this picture in mind. And what I want to say I'll say it now and I'll say it at the end, is what a house is built on may seem insignificant until the storm breaks. What a house is built on may seem insignificant until the storm breaks. I have been in leadership in some form or another in this church for many, many years. And one thing that I can put my money on if I wanted to is that everyone seems to have an idea and an opinion about how church should be done. <laughs> everyone has their thoughts about what the priorities should be, what shouldn't be the priorities, where we should be going, where we shouldn't be going. Everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people have opinions, and not everyone has the same opinion. And after all of these years of being in leadership, in ministry or in church leadership, I am now at the point where there is only one thing I'm interested in, and that is that we build according to the patterns that we find in here. I have no other interest. You're welcome to tell me your opinions or your thoughts, but this is what I'm concerned about more than anything. And today I want to show you a picture of the early church operating under the ministry of the great apostle, who is Yeshua. And secondly, under the 12 men appointed by Yeshua as his apostolic representatives on the earth. In the book of Acts, a book we're all familiar with, I'm sure, we read that a religious storm a religious tsunami broke out over Jerusalem. 
And the resulting waves swept believers far and wide into Judea, Samaria, and beyond. However, the newly filled Holy Spirit apostles stayed put in Jerusalem right at the center of the storm. And they not only held firm and stood strong, but in the face of extreme persecution, began to build what we now see in the earth, a spiritual phenomenon, a building, a house that still stands today, centuries later. Yes, the church was established, and over the centuries it multiplied and it grew as Yeshua, the master craftsman, built his church in the earth. This church promoted one faith, one doctrine, one immersion, not a new creation, but an extension of an old one with a new look about it. Jew and Gentile joined together, having the same Father above all and in all, a God who was directing his affairs on the earth, initially through his Son, and then later, through his Holy Spirit. This church that I'm talking about today, the church was built, yes, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's what we heard yesterday. And there was no religious or political storm that could withstand the strength and the power of the spiritual house being built on the rock, with Yeshua himself being the chief cornerstone. Today, we are possibly on the edge of another world spiritual tsunami. We don't really know what the coronavirus explosion meant or even means. Many people have their theories, I know. And we don't really know what the events surrounding Eastern Europe right now possibly might mean. And I'm not interested in conspiracy theories in the slightest. But I will say this, that my personal belief is that what has been taking place in our earth in the last two years is going to be a gateway to something far more serious, far more sinister, something that will bring the church into direct opposition and persecution something that will escalate and transpire at some point into the emergence of an anti-Messiah in this earth. Whereby many will give allegiance to this anti-Messiah. We know that the love of many will grow cold. Yeshua himself said that. 
And I will say again, what a house or what a church is built on may seem insignificant until the storm breaks. We heard in our first sermon yesterday that this congregation has been for decades built on the understanding that the apostles and the prophets are the foundations of the building or the church. But I'd like to say it's the other gifts that we read of in the New Testament, many other gifts, that make this house, this church, a beautiful building. Together, it is made into a bride fit for her groom. But we must remember who it is that's doing the building. It's Yeshua himself. The wise master builder who is building his church in the earth and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I believe in these last days across every nation, Yahweh is preparing and about to unleash men and women who will lead the way through this inevitable darkness, soon to cover this nation and this earth. Spiritual persecution will come against the church. Do you know that? Churches will close their doors because of the persecution. And I am saying today it's going to be important to recognize these men and women about to be unleashed in the earth. And we need to draw in close to them. With that in mind, I want us today to identify the marks of an apostle. At a marked time in eternity, at the commission of the Father, Yeshua, the apostle and great high priest of our faith, was sent from heaven, and he walked into the pages of earth's history, calling men and women to himself. Throughout the land of Israel, this divinity come to earth didn't just saunter along the footpaths of Israel as some of our modern pictures give to us. But this man, this one, he walked with absolute purpose, intent and meaning along the shores of Galilee into Israel's villages, towns and cities, calling men to come and follow me. He invited men and women to become part of a heavenly kingdom that was soon to fill the earth. And in particular, he called out to 12 men. And these 12 left all and became his spiritual sons. The next few years, we were to see that 
first tentative steps of these sons learning about life in the kingdom with all the experiences, good and bad, that mark a newborn child. Yeshua began to instruct them about the principles of kingdom life, about true discipleship, about what it really means to leave all and to follow him into the future and into the unknown. Who would dare have the courage and tenacity to drop everything they had known and follow this stranger unless something within them stirred? Unless something within them stirred so deeply that they had no choice? This was not some spiritual fanatic who had come along, but this one was someone who spoke with an authority they'd never heard before. He said things they'd never heard before. And I ask you today, my friend, has this same one walked into your life and stirred the recesses of your heart? Has something within you compelled you to follow him into the unknown future that awaits you? May Yahweh bless and help you. Because this future I'm talking about is both scary and exciting. And if you don't know this feeling or you've never known it, I'm suggesting that you're living far too comfortably. True discipleship costs and demands. These 12 men began to share their lives with each other. And more importantly, they shared their lives with him. This was an intimate, manly relationship. And from this small company of 13 men, one of whom was divinity, apostolic community was birthed and began to take shape in the earth. These 12, one of whom was to be replaced, were soon to be sent to the nations. But not yet. Not for three years, to be precise. But something incredible was stirring in Israel that made the common man and woman sit up and take notice. And on the back of this incredible and unprecedented interaction between heaven and earth, it was easy for the Holy Spirit to come in all of his fullness, and lead believers into a community lifestyle after the day of Pentecost. The followers of the way, as they were known then, gladly gave up all. They sold out for the kingdom. They lay everything down at the feet of the apostles, who then, with the support of deacons, distributed according to the need that existed. Jerusalem was awash with men and women who were desperate to learn all they could about kingdom life, being led by the Holy Spirit and working to the drumbeat of the apostles. Ultimately, after the gospel had gone to the Gentiles, we see apostolic order being laid down in the main by Peter and Paul throughout the churches that were springing up across Asia and Eastern and sorry Asia Minor and Europe. 
through these glorious, precious years, stretching from the moment Yeshua walked into the lives of these men until the day that the Great Commission began to take shape in the earth, these apostles learned some very important lessons along the way. Apostolic principles to be transferred from generation to generation, but principles also of church ministry, which if followed, provided the springboard for the gospel to be shared, for disciples to be nurtured and trained, and for ministries to be unleashed across the nations. So what were some of those lessons of apostleship? In order to answer this question, I want to just spend a short time on three points that mark the ministry of apostle. But I will also say here that whatever I say about the marks of an apostle can in some way be applied to every ministry gift. So no one is excluded. I want to just touch on apostolic calling, apostolic authority, and apostolic relationship. So apostolic calling. If I was to ask you to tell me the stories of these 12 men and how Yeshua came about to call them, I guess you could reel some of those stories off. Let's try it. Peter and Andrew, what were they doing when Yeshua called them? They were fishing, yes. John and James, what were they doing? They were mending their nets. They weren't fishing. What was Matthew doing? So, familiar stories. But were these the only ones Yeshua called, these 12 men? Were they the only ones? I say no. Because in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, we read, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. By the time of this happening, Yeshua had already gathered to himself a lot of disciples. And verse 12 of Luke 6 tells us that the previous night, Yeshua had been up in a mountain praying to his Father. He knew what was to follow the next day. He knew what instructions he needed to receive from the Father. It was imperative that he heard clearly from Yahweh. And so he prayed and he waited. He needed to be absolutely sure because he knew that when he did what he was about to do, he would be faced with criticism about his choice of men. But he only came to do the will of the Father. That's all he came to do, the will of the Father. And when dawn broke, he came down the mountain and he called all of his disciples. And out of the many, he called twelve and he designated them apostles. According to the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, the marks of an apostle are signs, wonders, and miracles. So I ask this question, when these 12 men were first called apostles, 
Had they displayed or accomplished any signs, wonders, or miracles? No, they hadn't. In fact, they were unrefined, unregenerate men. In Acts chapter 4, we read that the, all the, the, lead, the big leaders of the day in Jerusalem were together. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Yeshua. You see, in a few years' time, Peter and John were going to become the most prolific writer and speaker of their time that we so read or enjoy reading of in the Scriptures. But for now, they were far away from receiving those accolades. For now, they were simply called and chosen by the will of the Father. What they didn't know was that they were going to become the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Something they certainly didn't appoint for themselves. A little later, we saw them operating with signs, wonders, and miracles. And I'm saying today that any apostle in here should be seeking the Father for signs, wonders, and miracles. They are the marks of an apostle. But for now... It was sufficient for the great apostle to designate these unprepared and unequipped men as apostles. The learning would follow. I'm also reminded of the apostle Paul in his writings to many churches. He recognized that his apostolic calling was a unique calling and one which he didn't take lightly. Although he often felt unworthy, he referred to himself as the least of the apostles. I wonder if he compared himself to the twelve, and he felt in some way he just didn't measure up. Paul certainly felt like that. But he also did not choose this title for himself, or the road on which he was to travel. Why would he? The journey he was to go on was fraught with trial, tribulation, and suffering. Suffering and an apostolic calling go hand in hand. Neither did these 12 men whom Yeshua called choose this title for themselves. The title or the function of the apostle is not one we choose for ourselves. It's a divine designation. These 12 were designated apostles by Yeshua from the beginning when he called them. But they didn't fully function in their gift until after they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it was then that we saw the crowds of believers see and accept these men that were called and who would be ultimately sent to the nations, apostles to the church. So what does it mean to be an apostle? Certainly this was a new concept in the structure of religious or Jewish order, as it wasn't a term recognized in the Old Testament. 
It's interesting to me that in order for these 12 to get some sort of sense of what they were designated as, Yeshua used a term that was actually being used by the Roman Empire at the time. And that word is apostolos, which means it's a Greek word that means sent out one, sent out one. The Greeks used the word when describing an admiral over a fleet of ships sent out by his king to conquer other territories and to establish his government in those territories. The Roman Empire that occupied Palestine during the time of Yeshua also believed in this approach. As Rome conquered land and expanded its territory, the leaders of the empire realized something important to their survival. Unless they brought Roman culture to that conquered territory through appointed governors, the inhabitants of the land would one day revert back to their previous culture and they would rebel against the empire. So it was important for conquered lands to so embrace the culture so that if Caesar himself was to visit, he would feel totally at home in that land and in that culture. By naming these 12 apostles, Yeshua was essentially saying to them, when I send you out, I want you to transform the world's culture so much so that if my father came into the world, he would feel at home. The job of an apostle. It's interesting to me also that of all of the other equipping gifts spoken of in Ephesians 4, they are described by their function, whereas apostles aren't. So what do I mean? Prophets prophesy. Pastors or shepherds shepherd the flock. Teachers teach. Evangelists evangelize. We can't really say that apostles apostolize. What does that even mean? It's not even a word. Whereas these four equipping gifts, or gifts of the risen head, some of us know them as, are described by their function, apostles are described by their spheres. They are sent ones. It would appear that they may and are able to operate in any of the other designated equipping gifts according to the need of the situation, but they are primarily individuals who are sent to fulfill a specific mission in a specific area for a specific period of time, and they are equipped to move into any ministerial function as the need or the situation demands. These 12 cut their teeth on ministry quite early on. 
And after having been with Yeshua a relatively short time, we can read these. I'm not going to turn to these scriptures. In Matthew 10, we read that these 12 were sent out. And in Luke 10, we read that another 70 were sent out. And both scriptures tell us that when he sent them out, he gave them power. Remember, they were just trying out their wings with ministerial activity. Now, in the New Testament, there are two primary words, Greek words, used for power. One we're familiar with, dunamis. Thank you, Bev. And dunamis means miraculous powers. But this is not the word for power used in Matthew 10 or Luke 10. There is another word, which is exousia. And this means privilege, capacity, freedom, competency, right, and strength. At that time of being sent out, the twelve did not operate with dunamis, but with exousia. It was related to privilege and freedom and capacity. It was later when dunamis would be added to their ministry. So eventually, after three years of being with Yeshua, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission was given. And this is essentially an apostolic commission, which we're going to hear about tomorrow from Nathaniel. He called the 12 apostles together and told them to go into all the world and make disciples, as that scripture on that poster over there depicts. However, at this time, they did have dunamis added but we see that even with exousia and dunamis, they still couldn't fulfill the total extent of the Great Commission on their own without the supporting ministry gifts. And so they are dependent on the availability and service of others to come alongside them and work with them in their sphere of operation. One of the earliest lessons Yeshua gave to the twelve was that commissioning and equipping go hand in hand. It's dangerous for anyone's spiritual welfare and even their lives to presume that they can function without the combination of a calling and equipping necessary for that calling. It serves to only put an individual in spiritual danger and it limits severely the potential effectiveness of their calling and their commission. One last thing under this point that I want to say about apostolic calling is it's a separated, sold-out calling. Yeshua said many things to the 12 and then to the 70. He gave them many instructions when he first sent them out. And one thing he said was, Salute no man by the way. Salute no man by the way. In other words, beware of distractions to the call and to the commission. And last feast I spoke at length about this and I said the distractions to the most important thing in our life, the call of Yahweh and the commission of Yeshua can sometimes come to us from those closest to us. 
Sometimes our family, sometimes our friends, sometimes our business, sometimes our work, and sometimes our desire for a social life or a balanced life. These are distractions or can be distractions to the call. Yeshua said, salute no man, by the way. You know Yeshua did not preach about bringing balance to our lives. Can you tell me anywhere where Yeshua preached, make sure you live a balanced life, guys? He didn't. That was not his message. He spoke of an undisputed, unchallenged, unrivaled, unquestionable call to die out to self and live only for him. Salute no man, by the way. Beware of any distraction to this unique, unique calling. This applies not only to the apostolic calling, but to every man or woman out there who has been called by the Father and chosen for a specific task in this life. Is that you? Is that you? Let's just think about apostolic authority now. Here I'm not speaking about the nature of the authority, what it looks like, but I'm talking about the scope of the authority. Remember, apostolic calling must be understood in terms not of function, but of, were you listening? Spheres. Spheres. So the question I put to you today is, is an apostle an apostle to the whole body of Messiah? The answer is no. If I'm recognized as an apostle within the congregation of Yahweh, could I walk into the New Testament Church of God or the Baptist Church and be received as an apostle? Absolutely not. Why? Because apostles operate within a sphere of authority. Apostolic authority is unique but it's also limited. What do I mean by this? Well, I'm just thinking about Paul. He said some very interesting things to the Corinthian church. And the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church is a very complex one, and I won't go into that today. But one thing it seemed that they had done was to allow different teachers to come in into their midst. And so much so that they ended up being confused about who their leaders were and who their apostles were and all this kind of thing. And the Apostle Paul, in his first letter, which wasn't actually his first letter, it's the first letter we've got, says this, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in Yeshua. He's speaking directly to the Corinthian church here. If I'm not an apostle to others, I am to you. But then he goes on and he opens this up a bit. He says, we, however, this is in the second letter that we've got, which wasn't actually the second letter, but you need to read the book of Corinthians. There was four letters written to the Corinthians. We've only got record of two. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service Yahweh himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. 
We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did get as far as you with the gospel of Messiah. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. So Paul understood some very fundamental principles about apostolic authority. He understood the fact that, yes, it was a unique authority with a specific look about it, but he also alluded to the fact that it had its limitations in terms of spheres. Or in other words, it had its boundaries. The first time I ever went on a plane was when I was about 34 years old. Quite old, I know, in this day and age to be going on a plane for the first time. And I went to Malawi in the year 2000 with my dear brother Alcott. And I think you know the story that when I was there, we were sitting in a fast food type restaurant and I heard Yahweh speak to me, asking me to lay down my life and to give my life to that country. And I have tried to do that ever since I heard that call. On acceptance of that call, I believe Yahweh gave me authority and an accompanying anointing to operate in the country and to exercise some form of authority in the church. Today, even with a fallout in recent years, the churches which remain still see me as someone they turn to for advice and direction. And most of you know about the work of village foundations in the country. I seem to be able to have access and some measure of influence in governmental health circles. But I accept this because it's Yahweh who has given me to that country and he has released in me a measure of authority within that country. As part of the same international visit, Alcott came home and I flew on to Kenya for two weeks. What happened in Malawi did not follow suit in Kenya. Yahweh certainly didn't speak to me in the same way I, when I was in Malawi. He didn't require the same of me where Kenya was concerned. Even though they loved and respect me, and hopefully still do, Kenya is outside of my sphere of authority. Not of operation, but of authority. There is a big difference. I can go to Kenya as a teacher and teach and be received as a teacher, but I can't go as an apostle because it's outside of my authority, my sphere. It's a shame Jem Rose isn't here today, but hopefully she's tuning in through the live stream. A number of years ago, you know that Jem Rose received a, a similar commission to Rwanda, and Yahweh requires her to live in that land for the moment. Jem Rose was apostolos. Do you know that? She was apostolos. She was sent by the Father 
with the blessing of the leadership in this church. I've been to Rwanda a few times, I think about three times. When I go to Rwanda, I submit myself to the anointing and the authority of Jemrose, who has been sent, who is apostolos to that country. And she, with that, has been given a measure of oversight, authority, and freedom by Yahweh in that country. And even though I too might be apostolic, I cannot and I will not usurp her authority unless she gives it to me. Unless she gives it to me. I cannot assume responsibility or authority in the body of Yeshua unless it is given firstly by the Father and secondly by the church or group of people to whom I've been sent. The lesson here is that apostolic authority is given, not taken. It's given, not taken. Given firstly by Yahweh, then given by the group or the church that I am serving or that I have been sent to. You know, Paul is often understood by his writings. He's often judged to be autocratic and a law to himself. However, it's not true. It's not true. Paul understood spheres of authority. He also respected the ministry done by others. He recognized his own limitations in exercising apostolic authority and the need to work with and submit to others in matters of huge importance, especially when outside of his spiritual territory. There's a very well-known story in Acts 15, and I'm just going to give you a precede account. It's basically concerning the gospel that was coming to the Gentiles, and in particular those in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were based at this time. So what happened was there were men coming from Judea who were telling the believers that they need to be circumcised in order to be accepted as part of the company of those who've come to faith. And the issue began to boil over. And the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to discuss the matters with the apostles and elders who were residing in Jerusalem. Now just picture it, all the leading ministers of the day, possibly the 12 apostles of the Lamb, because remember they stayed put right at the, the, the beginning of the storm. They would have all been there, the apostles, the elders, and the prophets also were present. And they had this one big ministerial meeting about the issue of circumcision. We, don't, we do know that at least Peter was present because he spoke at length at this hearing. And Paul and Barnabas also gave witness to what Yahweh was doing among the Gentiles. And after everyone had had their say and had made their input, given their opinions... James, interestingly, the brother of Yeshua, stood up and made final judgment on the matter. It's very likely that James was the senior elder in Jerusalem. And when he had heard all that had to be said on the matter, 
He gave the final judgment and made recommendations. And a letter was sent back with Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas also went with them back to Antioch. And there they confirmed the resolution made by James to the church in Antioch. Now, what I want to say here is that because Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he could have thought it was his apostolic right to preside and make judgment over this matter. Because it concerned the Gentiles. And Peter, well, he's only concerned with the Jews. But Paul recognized that this was a much wider concern than a Gentile issue. And one which would impact the whole church, Jew and Gentile alike, going forward. So what did he do? He first of all submitted to the request of the church to go to Jerusalem. It was the church that sent him. He had his say. He discussed the matter with the apostles and elders. Then he submitted to the judgment made by James. We don't really know what Paul's personal opinion was. He might have kicked against James's judgment. He might have totally disagreed. He could well have argued his personal position and his personal persuasion and why he wasn't happy with the outcome. Did he leave the church? If he didn't agree with that decision, was it an excuse to leave the church? No. Did he continue to argue his viewpoint? No. Did he gossip about it? No. You see, Paul loved the church, and he wanted the best for it, and he submitted himself to the apostles and elders who are resident in Jerusalem and presiding over the church at large. And he was happy to be sent back to the Gentile church and to those believers where the issue was brought up and deliver what the verdict was from the apostles and elders. He submitted himself. It showed he respected spheres of authority within the church. So I will say this before I go on to my final point. Spheres of ministry must be established, understood, and accepted if the church is to function effectively and properly in these last days. Spheres of ministry must be established, understood, and accepted if we are going to work according to the pattern that we find here. We'll get into rough waters if we operate according to any other pattern, any other system, and any other structure other than the one spoken of in the Scriptures. This is our only sure foundation when it comes to order and authority. It's part of being built on the rock. So finally, I just want to talk about apostolic relationship. The apostle never was, never has been, and never will be an island. If you come across an isolated individual who has no one around him but himself, 
and to his self-appointed and self-proclaimed apostle, beware. They exist, you know. They exist. One of the true marks of an apostle can be seen by the relationships he has in his or her life. And I say that, and you might disagree with me, but I believe women can be apostles. It's my personal belief. First thing I will say is this. Apostles need apostles. Yep. This is crucial for many reasons, for accountability, for covering, for mutual support, and for safety. There's a reason Yeshua sent them out in twos. There's a reason. But will apostles always agree with each other? Of course not. We read of Paul seriously confronting Peter over what he perceived to be Peter's hypocrisy concerning the Jew and Gentile issue. Paul was seriously upset with Peter. They had a major fallout. And Paul seemed to have fallouts all over the place. He had a major fallout with Barnabas after they were both appointed as apostles over the issue of John Mark. Now, John Mark had been on their first um, apostolic missionary journey together, and, and Paul believed that he was a weak individual because he wanted to go home. And so when the second missionary journey came along, Barnabas and Paul had a discussion about it. And Barnabas, who was a loving apostle, uh, he says, I want to give him another chance. And Paul says, no way. No way he's let us down once. I'm not trusting him again. And they had a major sharp disagreement, the Bible tells us. And they went their separate ways. Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas. So they went off. Apostles will not always agree. But I will say this, that they can operate side by side. And they are able to. Why? Because they recognize their differences in specific callings, specific fears, and specific functions. And while not always agreeing, they respect and release these differences in each other. I've already described how in Jerusalem we see something interesting, really beautiful happening, or we see it in the church in Jerusalem where apostles and prophets and elders, they work together to provide leadership and oversight, not only to the Jerusalem church, but to the whole national expanding church. These three groups work together. So we see that the apostles' relationship to prophets and elders is particularly crucial. I want to say something now about apostles and prophets. First thing I'll say is this. Apostles and prophets should be hitched together. A bit like two oxen or two horses or two men trying to climb a mountain. They should be hitched together. They should be harnessed. They should be joined. They should be fastened together. We kind of get this picture from the New Testament. And I'm saying that sadly, some apostles and some prophets never reach their full potential. And sometimes their gift becomes dormant and compromised. Why? 
because they're unhitched. They are not together. Unhitched, they might achieve a little bit, but they don't reach the fullness of what Yahweh wants until they're together. Apostles and prophets who do reach their full potential and their gift and their calling have come to understand and appreciate their mutual roles in the kingdom of Yahweh. They know how to relate to one another in a positive way and they add value to each other's lives. 1 Corinthians 12 states that Yahweh has given firstly apostles and secondly prophets. He's not here establishing a spiritual hierarchy, but a procedural relationship, a, a pattern in how they should work. What do I mean? In most cases we read of in Scripture, if not all, ultimately in matters of doctrine and direction, it was the apostle who would determine the way forward. And when serious matters came up, like the issue of circumcision in, in Acts chapter 15, the apostles and elders would meet together with the prophets, it would seem. They would discuss, they would debate. And it's interesting that on this particular issue, Judas and Silas were sent with Barnabas and Paul back to Antioch. Judas and Silas were prophets. And they went to confirm the word that had been given. Yahweh will often use his prophets to bring a word of direction directly to the apostles. However, as far as I can see, it's the responsibility of the apostles to make the decision as to what to do with what is presented. I'm just sharing what I see in the scriptures. It's what I see. It's not the responsibility of the prophets to ensure that his or her word is carried out or followed through. Their responsibility before Yahweh is to deliver the word and then to leave it there. Deliver the word and to leave it there. They must also realize that the timing of that word is crucial. Once delivering the word to the apostle, it's important then that the prophet doesn't hold the apostle to ransom. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you think it doesn't happen? Do you think it hasn't happened? The prophet must not hold the apostle to ransom if that word is not followed through in the way the prophet thinks it should be. Sometimes a prophetic word is given to a prophet, not so he or she can deliver it, but sometimes simply to pray about it, becoming a personal intercessor for the apostle and to the church. Paul often taught that each gift has a measure of faith, a measure of grace, a measure of rule beyond which it's disastrous to move. The point I'm trying to make here is that there is a cut-off point in everyone's ministry. Both the apostle and the prophet need to know what that cut-off point is and not seek to minister beyond it. If he or she does, 
there will sometimes be very painful mistakes and consequences for the church and the person. Sometimes because of the nature of both the apostle and the prophet and their different giftings, the apostle and prophet can become very, very close friends. As we heard yesterday, we heard about Elder Peter Warsop and Prophet Daniel Smith. They were the best of friends as well as spearheading together with Valerie and others, an apostolic team that laid the foundations we heard yesterday of all that we see today. Brother Daniel and Elder Peter Warsop were hitched together. Isn't that right, Valerie? <clears throat> One of the jobs of an apostle is to see and to share the spiritual mandate laid out by heaven for the church. But every apostle needs a team of individuals who can help him carry out this vision. A vital function of the apostle's ministry is to train disciples and recognize and release ministerial gifts within the body. An apostle is like an architect who has received a mandate or a blueprint from heaven. Now, an architect or a master builder knows that a house can't be built in five minutes. But an architect doesn't get depressed or phased when he or she comes to a construction site and all he or she finds is a land filled with clay, sand, and stone. It's important to note the nature of apostles here. While others see a boring, ugly, useless site filled with rubbish and countless problems and risks and liabilities, the architect or the apostle sees what it can become in the future. An apostle's gift can see and create something out of nothing. And sometimes only the apostle can see it. Sometimes. But he does need a host of skilled individuals to produce what's on paper. And the New Testament we know goes to great lengths to speak about a many-membered body. The eye cannot do without the mouth. The hand cannot do without the foot. Every ministry gift is important to furnish this house and to make it beautiful. I want to show you a couple of things about a very well-known scripture. And we have it here on this board here, but I'm also going to bring it up here. Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 12. I'm not far away finishing now. And he himself, this is from the New King James Version, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Messiah. Now, that's the new King James Version. The King James Version is slightly different. I'm just going to show you, and I'm going to see if you spot the difference. There's two major differences. And this is the King James Version. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Messiah. There's two differences. There's a, a major difference in one word 
and there's a very big grammatical difference. Anyone spot the grammatical difference? No, it's a, a comma. There's a comma. Let me just go back to New King James Version, sorry. He gave him, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. The King James Version, there's a comma after saints. Now, it's very subtle, but it says two very different things. The King James Version suggests it's the work of these five who are responsible for the work of the ministry. The New King James Version suggests that the responsibility of the five is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Yeah, now which one's right? Which one would you like to be right? <laughs> Listen, I don't know. <laughs> All the answer is. But I will say this, that no one is excluded. No one is excluded. It is the job of us all, saints, the job of every member of the body to do the work of the ministry. Right, so what's the other big difference? The difference in a word. Equipping and perfecting. So going back, sorry, there's the New King James Version. It says equipping of the saints. King James Version for the perfecting. It's a very interesting word. The Greek word used for perfecting is actually katartismos, which has various meanings such as complete furnishing, repairing, mending, restoration. It implies a realignment. Right? So with that thought in mind, let's read this text again. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the realignment of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Messiah. Go away and think about that. It's a medical term meaning to align a bone that was broken to set it in place so it can heal. The job of the apostle and the other ministry gifts is to realign, set in place, and heal so the saints can carry out the work of the ministry. You know, we are living in a world with so many broken people. Do you know that? Do you actually live in the world? You, I mean, really, do, do you live in the world? Or do you just live in your own little space? If you live in the world, you will see that we have so many broken, broken people all around us. Lives which have been bruised and abused. And these are the people we're trying to reach. You know they will bring with them their broken lives into the church. Do you know what our job is? It's to align that which is broken. It's to set it in place so it can heal. This is the work of the whole ministry. Can I say this? Church is not about us. It's about them. It's not just about us. It's about them. 
I often think about that story of the prodigal son. When he came back, he was a broken man. He was bruised. He was battered. And what did the father do? He threw him a party. But what was the response of the older son? He was really upset about it. And he says, here I am. I've slaved away for you all of these years. And I've never had a party. And the father says, but all that I have is yours. But today we must celebrate for this one who was lost has been found again. Now I am saying we cannot be like the older son because today we must celebrate those who are lost and broken coming in and together we must realign and heal, set in place. That's what we're about. Church is not just about us. It's about them. And I've said it before. In order to get those who are outside in, we first of all got to get those who are inside out. And I'm not sure if we've heard it yet. The church is simply one big team of individuals coming together Engaging in the work of ministry in a broken world. And this is why house churches could be so effective. Because each and every member has an opportunity to engage with real ministry on the ground. Instead of being just a spectator coming along to a weekly service. Have you seen this yet with the house churches? This is what we're about. Yeshua told Peter and Andrew they would become fishers of men. Apostles are still called to be fishers of men. But once the fish have been caught, there's a lot of work to be done with them. Yeah? Which brings in all the other ministries. I'm going to wrap this up by just very quickly talking about Apostle Paul and order in the church. Paul was very much responsible for, it seems, bringing order into the church. His... his Actions always demonstrated order. Whoever he took with him, it was men of integrity and great character. He was very careful about who he chose to take on his missionary journeys. And he, he took pride in those he brought to faith, a bit like um, Elder Peter Warsop. You know, he, he took time to nurture them and train them and prepare them and to equip them for the ministry. But then he wasn't afraid to set them in place and, and let them go such as his two spiritual sons, Timothy and Titus. We read, he said this to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you could set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. It's interesting to me that Paul didn't consult the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem over this appointment of Titus. He didn't go back to Jerusalem. He didn't write a letter to Jerusalem and say, is it all right for me to, to, to let Titus go and to free him up, to appoint elders in Crete? Titus was probably an apostle and was probably senior elder within Crete. Paul trusted his judgment. Paul trusted Titus's judgment. And Paul went on his way and was led by the Holy Spirit and Titus remained in Crete to finish the work. This is a picture of a beautiful order 
and a workable, sensational way of doing things. And so the church continued to grow and expand to reach beyond its borders and create a pattern, a way of doing things, which if followed, the same results would follow from generation to generation. It's, it really is as simple as that. Simple as that. If we get it right, have we got it right? That's the question. Have we got it right? If we agree together to work to the pattern of ministerial order spoken of in the scriptures, we too will see the church grow and expand beyond its borders if we get it right. So in conclusion, the gift of the apostle today, regardless of what anyone says, is absolutely crucial to the building up of the kingdom of Yahweh in these times in which we live. In the church or the body, ministry gifts need to be recognized, affirmed, and ordained and fit into an apostolic drive in communities across this nation. Each gift must find its expression and fulfillment within an apostolic order and vision. Gifts within the body are not to function in a vacuum or in isolation, but as part of a compelling apostolic vision handed down from heaven, one which, if embraced, will impact the core of everybody's life. I am asking you today, church member, saint, I'm asking you to work hard, to pray hard, to seek hard, to find out your calling in this life, in this your church. Remember the calling on your life is the most important thing you will ever have to wrestle with. Everything should fall in line behind this. Everything. The gift Yahweh places in your life is only there to enable you to do what Yahweh has called you to do. That's why your gift has been given so that you can fulfill what you've been called to do. I urge you to make yourself available to the ministry, agree to be discipled and trained that you might become fully equipped to become part of this exciting mission. A company of individuals who are working in apostolic order and vision will produce dynamic results. The communities in which they work will be dramatically affected by the gospel of the kingdom. People will turn their hearts and follow after Yahweh. We will see lives changed through the saving grace of Yeshua. We will see new ministries emerge in people we may have underestimated. And in those places we may have written off, elders and in towns and cities will be established and churches will grow and multiply. Why wouldn't you want to become part of something like this? Like this. That's the church. 
What do you need to do to get there? Remember, there's a storm a-brewing. There's a storm coming. It's a perfect storm. Do you know what I mean by that? It's a perfect storm. It's important what we build on, where we build, and how we build. What a house is built on may seem insignificant until the storm breaks. Yahweh bless you. Thank you for spending some time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged and inspired. We pray that what you've heard will transform your life.